Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Minerva's Tipsy Technical Tintographer Solution. Anyone can type, but who wants to? What a hassle, am I right? With Minerva's Tipsy Technical Tintographer, you can tell that tedious tapping to take a twirl. The Tipsy Technical Tintographer is your one topographer companion for a technological turn. This Tipsy Tin Titan can tackle tedious tasks while you enjoy a gin and tonic. What a thrill to watch the Tipsy Technical Tintographer transport you to a territory that totally terminates typos. He may need to knock him back to cope. This topographer is no teetotaler. But why have existential dread of manual labor when your tin friend can have it for you? Minerva's Tipsy Technical Tintographer solution. Save your regrets for tomorrow. The Minerva family lived in a fine two-story home with a wraparound porch, scalloped wood trim like fish scales, a short round tower with a cone roof, and a tiny balcony off the second-story bedroom. It was an inheritance, a leftover from what was once the family house that looked over a great orchard. But now it sat on a small, uneven plot of land, fenced in on each side over time by different neighbors, so that each section of property fenced in, in odd places, odd alleys between them. One large yellow crabapple tree, the last of the great orchard, whose trunk branched off like fingers of a hand thick enough for sitting, and nooks that could hide all sorts of things under a white-pink canopy of blossoms. The tree grew up next to the house as if the two were siblings, and the squirrels ran from nut cloisters in the roof into the branches and back again. The fruit picked to make cider and crabapple coolie. The stragglers would drop in the autumn and rot and make a slippery mash underfoot after heavy rains. A stone bird bath under the wooden bird feeder, like a regal chalice, propped up on one side by two loose stones. 
rinsed finches and blue jays, and the odd squirrel. It sat next to a stubby iron well pump that delivered cool rushes of the sweetest water you've ever tasted. A similar one in the kitchen next to the two large sinks with a washboard lie and a worn, stiff brush. A soot pan filled in the mornings from scraping out the five fireplaces. Two in the bedrooms, dining room, parlor, kitchen range on the main floor. The pan would be dumped into the ash box, ready for collecting. The wagon men, the dust collectors, the offal collectors, the bone collectors, and rubbish men would bring their wobbly carts down the narrow alley and collect from family homes along the way. The Minerva family was originally a cider family through generations, but a bad blight had spoiled two seasons, and Ensid Minerva picked up a traveling trade to support the family. What little he made went to offset the slowly sold-off partitions of land, and eventually the cider house itself was sold off and converted into a small tannery. Ensid came from a long line of inspired Minerva men. He married Miriam Minerva after introducing himself at the dry goods store. He said he caught her eye because of the way her big hat tilted when she looked at canned peaches in the sunlight through the window. Miriam gave him three raven-haired daughters, Millie, Mercy, and Madeline, all fairly close in age. Millie was the oldest and had a practical, somewhat even-tempered approach to life and took after her mother. Mercy was beset with empathy and seemed to feel everyone else's feelings for them. This empathy extended to the natural world. She had a great connection to animals of all stripe and spent much of her time pondering the relations of the family of squirrels in the tree, establishing names and daily interactions as they chattered from up above. She would speak up for anyone, before they even had a chance to, to say that one of her sisters was worried or frustrated or hoarding an uncomfortable secret. Madeline, the youngest, was carefree and the most affectionate of the family. As funds got thinner at the house, the servants left and the girls picked up the chores. Millie supervised the other girls, doling out tasks to not burden their mother. And with a naive hope that the house be in good condition when their father did finally come back. Things were quite wonderful before the blight struck the orchard. But since his travels, Ansid had become a hazy memory to his daughters. The occasional lingering smell of pipe smoke and a jacket left on the hook. The echo of a deep voice in the upstairs hall. The biggest slice of roast set aside at dinner, purely out of habit. But now a cold, empty plate at the head of the table. The chair pulled out with a cloth napkin on the seat, dusted off regularly out of respect for his eminent return. Miriam knew better, but would never confess it for her daughter's sake. Miriam's rules relaxed. What good would proper manners be to girls who were getting grimy from chores? They were allowed to play freely outside and climb the tree, or have tea on blankets, or stand in the grass and bare feet. Miriam was mildly less concerned with keeping up graces than seeing the young girl's happiness diminish. The second floor bath filled once a week with warm water from the stove. Lugged up by million pots with the usual small rest at the landing, she would watch the steamy water sway, and then hoist it the rest of the way, where Miriam would fill the tub basin, roll up her sleeve, and test the water temperature with her finger. Then she would shake off the drops and nod. All three girls were washed together. Their dark curls scrubbed up with a mixture of egg whites, olive oil, and crab apple cider vinegar. Each one tipping her head back, and then rinsed with a tin pitcher used to water the flowers. Then Miriam would wrap the girls in towels and nightdresses, set them in bed where Millie would read a storybook. Miriam would give their damp foreheads a kiss, and then she would return, and in candlelight, settle herself in the bath. She'd light one of her pinched cigarettes and place it in the metal holder. 
a gift from Ensid with a mother of pearl inlay. She would sigh deeply, talk to herself in a low murmur that would slightly echo off the tile, allowing herself the pleasure of the rose-perfumed soap that came wrapped in fancy paper through the mail. She would have given the girls her very eye teeth, but this one thing she kept away from them. The girls found the decorative paper in the wastebasket and would take turns sniffing it and imagining fancy tea parlors and elevated conversation about music compositions, fine art salons, and scandalous literature. It became synonymous with their mother as the scent lingered and slowly faded through the week as she showed her affection, just gasping its last rosy bloom before the next bath. Madeline, the youngest, loved her namesake and tiny cakes and anything in a shortbread. All desserts, really. She was preoccupied with the idea to collect one of these sugary treats, a fine-looking shortbread sweet with a gooey daub of red strawberry jam at the center that had been dancing in her head and calling her name from the jar. Even as she hid underneath the bed covers, the thought made her toss and turn, and ultimately she slipped out under the quilt, down the side of the bed, crept to the door, down the hallway and to the stairs. When she spotted her mother through the railing and quietly watched her enter the kitchen, stand up on a step stool, and reach to the highest cupboard, she stretched her arm far to the back and then removed a tin. Miriam wrenched open the lid, shook the can, looked down in it disappointed. She pulled out a few coins, dropped them in her apron pocket, and then slid the tin back into the cupboard. Madeline returned to the room and woke her sisters. She didn't understand what she just witnessed, but when relayed to her sisters about Mom's look into the shaker tin, Millie and Mercy knew not to bother the young one. They dismissed it, but stayed up all night to set up with a plan to help and spare her mother any shame in the matter. It was Millie's idea to take what they'd had, what they'd enjoyed, and restart the family business by selling crabapple cider to passers-by. Millie would assemble the stand and supplies, Mercy would brew the cider with juice and yeast as she had a gift. And the courageous and possibly fearless Madeline would approach strangers. She was often irresistible with the natural charm of the youngest. They set up a small stand on the corner where the main dirt road and small cart alley met to sell crabapple cider to travelers. At first it was a swallow out of a pitcher from a long metal ladle. Then when folded paper cups fashioned from the newspaper didn't hold, they collected glass jars and washed them. It wasn't long before they were selling the cider by whatever glass bottle or jug they could scrounge and cork with a wad of cloth wrapped around a section of thick twig as a stopper. The cider was popular with the tradesmen traveling by cart up and down the alley. Millie got good at making the small talk that adults often did about the weather or an ornery hog. And the girls pretended not to know anything about the boozy kick the cider provided to ease one through a workday. The girls knew it wouldn't be long before Miriam noticed the rations of sugar they had snuck for each batch, and tried a lesser amount, but the sheer sour put them off when they realized they sucked lemons for relief. They managed to make a tidy sum, and when presented to their mother, offered to buy a new sack of sugar, and made sure to exclaim that this was a way for them to connect to the family roots, not in any way hint at monetary troubles. Miriam was a little skeptical, but admired their initiative, and it seemed to keep them out of trouble. She insisted on the regular schedule of their home tutelage, literacy being the most important, but otherwise the girl spent every spare moment making and selling crab apple cider. The absence of their father, 
and the dwindling money weighed heavily on Miriam Minerva. The girls had a greater sense of what was going on, except Madeline Minerva. They did keep it away from her, and her of simple tastes had no inclination to want for anything. She seemed not to notice when it was her birthday, and acted like it was any other day, reveling in the joy of being with her sisters and unwrapping boxes and eating cake, but ignoring the gifts as not seeing as anything is rightly hers, but just everyone's. She took as much joy in a dandelion she had plucked from the dirt, or the way her sister's earrings caught the light, which caused her to ponder the colors for some time. Nothing could bring her more contentment than a bite into a fresh slice of peach pie with the generous pile of whipping cream her mother was so fond of. And then a warm fire, and playing jacks on the flattest board near the hearth. If you poked at a hole in her stocking, she giggled at the cold finger. If you shut a door suddenly, she would hunch down and whisper to the ghosts behind it. The girls speculated that if she found herself at the bottom of the ocean, she wouldn't bat an eye and would begin pouring tea for Mr. Octopus and offer her scones the starfish. It was as if she herself had sprung from the pages of a storybook and welcomed herself into the family. Millie and Mercy took great strides to protect that disposition, felt a deep responsibility for it. As that feeling drained from them as the family struggle increased and they suspected abandonment, the cider money helped but it was apparent there was a slow slide to destitution. The house was falling into disrepair. Miriam was unable to find work and rejected any male attention she received while out in town. The older daughters grew increasingly worried, but tried not to show it, as the brightness that had held their mother's eyes for years faded and worry lines took residency in her face. Madeline was lying on her stomach after her bath, hair wrapped in a towel, blowing drops of water through the crevices in the wooden floorboards to race them to see which one would win, but made sure to encourage both to the finish line. Mercy approached her with a small cloth sack she found while making the next batch of cider. It was filled over halfway with a collection of dark crabapple seeds. What are these? Mercy asked. Madeline pushed the water across, declaring the right drop the winner. She tilted her head up, saw the pouch, stood quickly and snatched it from her sister, turning away. These are my magic seeds. I'm going to grow a new orchard. Mercy was concerned. Not at the thought, but at Madeline's near-complete lack of focus and attention. That's fine, Maddie. Mercy opened the pouch and shook a few seeds out into her palm. I know we drink the cider and eat the fruit, but you must never eat these seeds... They are very dangerous. They'll make you very sick. Don't feed them to an animal, either. These seeds are poisonous. Madeline was intrigued. How do you get the poison out to make the cider? Mercy told her. I know a special trick the fairies whisper to me. Only I can make the cider. And only I know how to take out the poison. Madeline had heard Mercy speak about the fairies before. The fairies whispered to Mercy in the trees when she was walking in the dark and would sneak in and give fluttery kisses to her eyelids while she slept. Madeline had never seen the fairies, but stayed up late even to try to trap one. No luck. And she knew her sister would never lie to And she thought it was the fairies playing a very mean trick when Mercy got sick. But it was something else entirely. It would take some time to put the pieces together, but eventually Miriam and Millie realized that Mercy had slowly diminished the amount of food she ate every night, 
taking smaller and smaller portions, and even then, offering up extras to her sister's plates as she was, in her words, too full to carry on would be excused to lie down. Eventually, Mercy began just eating a little greens or some vegetables to let everyone else eat the meats and gravies. Or she'd take a single roll, ignore the butter, and would pick small pieces throughout the meal, only to just finish along with everyone else. Miriam didn't want to confront her about it, never talked about money or need, but suspected that Mercy had an idea of their troubles. She might be conserving for the well-being of her sisters. It was during a particularly hard rain that Mercy didn't come down for dinner, or breakfast, or lunch, or dinner again. As Millie was stacking pots on stacks of books and chairs to catch the water droplets from the ceiling, she called up once again to Mercy, who this time didn't answer. Miriam feared the worst and summoned the neighboring family doctor, who was kind enough to stop in in exchange for some tea and biscuits and a bit of catching up. It was not the consumption, and no known sickness he could tell. He thought it might be nerves, and instructed Miriam that despite her best efforts, children are far more clever than they let on, and that Mercy might be suffering from an inherent sense of her mother's worry. He prescribed some simple broth and rest and sunshine when the rain let up. And there was no let-up. It rained for weeks, steady. Miriam sat with Mercy and read to her. The girls took turns as Miriam looked to the house. Still, Mercy refused the broth. Mercy would not take any food, even upon the insistence of Mother. She clamped her lips tight, and when Miriam grew desperate, she had the girls hold her arms. Miriam held her nose, and even then, Mercy just turned blue from no breath. And Miriam abandoned it before Mercy could suffocate. The doctor was called again, but nothing could be done to make the girl eat. Mercy wouldn't talk. She was awake, but pale, but otherwise healthy. Her eyes were open. She would glance around the room, give looks to her sisters or mother, but for weeks would not speak or eat. Occasionally she would point at a book or the window to open the shade, but mostly she would look blankly at the corner or close her eyes for a long, quiet nap. She would not leave the bed. She would not sit up. More than anything, she would not eat. Mercy did not thin from her lack of food, which was strange. She did not grow sallow, but simply stayed in an almost suspended state. The other girls moved in to sleep with their mother in her bed, just in case there was a sickness but also to give their sister some space to find her way back to them. It was late one evening, as the other girls had gone to bed. Miriam was finishing up reading to Mercy. She slipped the cloth mark in the book, stood, set it carefully on the night table. She cupped her hand at the edge of the glass lamp cover and blew hard enough to snuff the light, let her eyes adjust to the dark, and looked out the window to the old crabapple tree. She quietly sat at the edge of the bed, Still looking into the night, reached back with her hand, searching the bed cover, gently clasped her daughter's cold fingers. Mercy didn't respond, and Miriam lowered her eyes. And then Mercy stirred, and ever so gently, slid her fingers forward and closed around Miriam's hand. Miriam took to look at her daughter, 
lock eyes with her in the dark. Then a tingling came into her fingers. Danced up her arm, under her sleeve, quickly down her side and into her center. Deep into her like a guttural jolt. Her muscles tightened. She felt a great swelling in her stomach. She lurched forward as if she had swallowed spoonfuls of syrup of Ipecac. Her hand clenched around her daughter's uncontrollably. The tingling radiated out from Mercy into Miriam, into her extremities. It gave her a dizziness as if she were floating, and then belched from some locked wooden chest deep within her. She blurted out, My husband disappeared on purpose and people think I'm a horrible woman. My daughters are clever. As soon as they open up, I've been keeping secrets from them. Everyone can see this nice rotting house away and weird up pity. I was never a good daughter and sister. I was too selfish and my family doesn't write because they're ashamed of me. The milk delivery men flirts with me and I refuse to hold a steam even though now I'm too good for him. My daughter is faking sickness because she would rather starve herself than she had spent any more time with her failure of a mother. Mercy released her grip and Miriam collapsed to the floor, gasping for breath. Feeling nauseous and empty, her tense muscles sore, her right eye red from the strain, and had broken a blood vessel, and her fists clenched against the dusty boards. A ruddy bird beat its wings and the dull flapping in her ears as they recovered, a great weight had lifted from her forced confession. Tears flowed into her eyes and into the dust. She tried to hold them back, wipe them away with the sleeve of her nightgown, but a sweet warm relief filled her and a great lightness lifted from her shoulders, standing upright. Great suffocating stones smothering her heart dragged away. The lines of constant worry erased from her forehead. Sweet relief. Her shame was gone. The self-hatred, the worry, that ugly voice that often ripped her to pieces on the inside, that dark glare in the mirror when she readied in the morning. All gone. Just warmth and relief. The sound was not enough to stir the other girls from the other room. Miriam gathered herself and made her way to the door and shut it softly. She returned to the edge of Mercy's bed, and shaking, she sat. She swore Mercy looked flushed, and had taken on a faint, almost glow in the darkness. Was that you? Miriam whispered. Could you feel that? Mercy, Mercy, answer Mama. Mercy was fast asleep. Miriam touched her hand again. It was limp, but warm, warmer than before. She touched her cheek. Mercy's skin was the warmest she'd ever felt, almost a fever. Miriam opened the window a bit to the cool night air curled up on the very end of the bed above the covers and fell asleep exhausted but for the first in a long time content Miriam told the girls that they couldn't touch Mercy that she might be contagious and in the morning sent Millie to call on the doctor once again she scrounged what little money she had and paid him for another visit Millie and Madeline crouched near the closed door to Mercy's room and listened to them whisper. Millie looked at Madeline. She's definitely pregnant. What's pregnant? From the fairies? Madeline asked. The doctor sounded confused. Miriam sounded exasperated. There was talking, 
the creak of the bed, and silence. And then the doctor was almost shouting. I never finished my education. People would tell I'm not a real doctor. I sold bottles of shawars, but it's a super practice. And people got sicker. My wife would tell I hate her cooking. Everyone knows my brother is smarter than me. The doctor closed out the door, wiping his brow with his handkerchief. That girl, that girl ain't right. Miriam ran after him, but could not stop him from running from the house, out in the front walk. Miriam was shouting, begging him not to tell anyone. The doctor tripped over the birdbath and tumbled out of the front fence gate, scrambling to the road. That girl makes you tell lies. It's unnatural. Miriam stood at the front gate, biting her kerchief. The doctor, so overwhelmed and embarrassed, afraid somehow that his secrets would get out, spread the word that Mercy was overtaken by something unnatural that made him say things. Word of her situation spread, and whispers began about Mercy being touched by something supernatural. It would be the lantern paper on a slow new Sunday piece that would label Mercy a fasting girl. Mysterious creatures imbued with special powers able to exist purely on air and light, said to have a glow about them. The light from the window reflected in a brilliant prism. Clouds would part. Birds would sit on the sill and bring presents. It was not long before crowds started forming around the house with all sorts of people trying to get in and men climbing trees trying to get a view of mercy. People asked for an audience so that she could impart her spirit into others for healing, sight, or calm relief. Miriam had never seen such desperation before. All the folks who'd exhausted every doctor and spiritual consultation willing to try anything for themselves or children or even favorite livestock. The crowds broke down the fence, trampled the bushes, pushed over the birdbath and even broke windows before Miriam drove them off with a fire poker. At first, Miriam denied Mercy's condition and would not allow any visitation until those desperate folks started coming around with wads of money in their fists. Hat in hand, overcome with faces drooping with doubt and grief and shame. Miriam was a little desperate herself, and with girls about to go hungry in a house in shambles, no way to even make cider. Miriam made one of the most difficult decisions of her life, with Millie and Madeline clung to her apron in the front stoop. Madeline innocently suggested that they could sell tickets to see Mercy. And Miriam did not flinch at the thought. At first she told herself it was just to get on their feet, make repairs, stock the larder. It would be very limited and only if Mercy seemed up to it that day. After all, how could she deny the sweet relief that had overcome her from her contact with Mercy? Some of these folks seem so very in need. And so after a full night at the kitchen table under the light of a dwindling candle, Miriam scratched out the first set of tickets to be sold on scratch paper. Word spread quickly. If you are desperate for some relief, if you have feelings of self-doubt, if you feel shunned by your family or community, come buy a ticket to see Last night unto my bed, be thought there came 
Our Lady of Strange Dreams, and from an urn, she poured live fire so that mine eyes did burn. At the sight of it, anon the floating fame took many shapes, and one cried, I am shame that walks with love. I am most wise to turn cold lips and limbs to fire. Therefore discern and see my loveliness and praise my name. Mercy, the shame eater. in the attic? Ingested a parasite? Looking for a Lenny Penny? Come bask in the emerald green glow of a strange city lying alone. Join our Patreon for Selena Cleverman, and Minerva might just let you pick her next solution. Join our Patreon, and no one will ever ask you for anything ever again. And again, 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 and again. And again. And again.